Let me say again, it is good to see everyone here and looking forward to the time of preaching and then our time of fellowship today. Um, so three things are going to happen at the end of today's service. We've been discussing this for a few weeks now and just to give you a heads up, after the sermon um, we will ordain Jason Ahrens as a Baptist minister through Caledonia Baptist Church. And after that, we will affirm Jason as our new associate pastor slash elder of our church. And the third thing is we're going to go eat together and celebrate. And so uh, I'm excited about all three of those things. Um, but before we do those things, I wanted to just speak a message that is, I hope the first part clarifies some questions that people may have regarding biblical church leadership. I preached on this two weeks ago. If you missed that or you're, more, you're curious about biblical church leadership, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon from two weeks ago where I covered a, a lot in that one message. Um, but I want to clarify some things, and then after that I'm going to give a charge uh, to myself, to Jason, and to our church. And so let's begin with some clarifying thoughts on biblical church leadership, and specifically this term that I've been throwing around for a while now, and the term is elders or eldership. Is everybody okay back there? Okay, make sure everybody's okay. All right. Um, if you're like me, and some of you are, some of you are, some of you are not. Um, I grew up in a Baptist church. I've been in Baptist churches my whole life. And for most of that time, I never even heard the word elder. And I think there are several, a few reasons why. But as I began to get older and study the Bible, I began to see that that term, although Baptist churches didn't seem to use it very often in my life, was actually a, a thoroughly biblical title. As a matter of fact, I want to show you something. Look at this. I think we'll put it up there for you. I did this again this week. I searched the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation, and I found the word pastor in there one time. Ephesians 4, verse 11, which I shared with you guys two weeks ago. Now, once or one or two other times, like in 1 Peter and in Hebrews, we see the word shepherd in this same context of being a pastor, a shepherd, a leader of the church. Then I looked and I found the word overseer six times in the New Testament to refer to this biblical leader. Then I searched the word elder and look how many times I found that in the New Testament. And that is the word used to describe church leaders. There's also times it's used to describe older men in the church. But this, specifically over 20 times, it's used to refer to New Testament biblical church leaders. Now, the word pastor, the word overseer, the word elder, all refer to the same guy, the same person, right? And I like the term pastor. I'm not trying to do away with the term pastor. I am the pastor here. And Jason, we're about to affirm him as associate pastor. That's a term I'm going to use. And I'm fine with you using that term as well. But I want you to know that the word elder is okay to use. And actually, as I look back, historically, Baptists used it as well. But somewhere along the way, I think probably to distinguish themselves from maybe Presbyterians or other groups, they, they maybe stopped using that word as much. 
So you're going to hear us use it. I might say pastor, I might say elder. Those words are interchangeable. But I wanted to just give you that clarification. Um, I know some have questions about that. If you have more questions, please uh, ask me after. Take your Bible. Turn to 2 Timothy. And I'm going to give a charge today with one of my favorite passages. And this charge, as I've studied this week and prepared this and looked over these notes... This is a charge first and foremost to myself as a reminder for myself and how I should be leading in a biblical way. Secondly, this is a charge to Jason as an incoming elder slash pastor at our church. And thirdly, church, this is a charge for all of us individually as Christian men and women and as a church body. And I like this passage so much. As a matter of fact, you've heard me speak on this passage probably once or twice before, but it just gives us this pattern for what I think is the most important thing in church. And listen to me closely. The most important thing in church is not that you like the church, or not that you like the music, or that you like the preacher, or that you like the temperature, or that you like the activities the church does. The most important thing in the church is this, do we make disciples? Because Jesus' final commission to his disciples was, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so if we're not doing that thing and everything else, does it really matter? That's the thing we should focus on. And I have to remind myself so often, and I hope I can remind you. I've used this illustration before, but if someone disclosed a secret to you, and I'll use this just an example. If they told you they had the cure for, for cancer or the cure for some disease that's dreaded, and they said, take this secret and, and change the world with this secret to cure, let's just say, cancer, what would you do? Would you keep it to yourself? Certainly not, right? You would become a zillionaire probably with that secret. But you would help save millions of lives. And so again, when Christ came 2,000 years ago, he came to cure something more important than any disease we found on this earth, and that's sin. And Christ came and he, he was the cure for sin, became the cure for sin, gave his life, laid down his life, sacrificed his life on the cross, dying in our place, and then he decided that the way he would get that word out is through some people. Isn't that amazing? You, you, you've heard me say this. Could God have taken the clouds or the stars in the sky and spelled out salvation? He could have. Could God speak audibly out loud to the whole world and say, do this and be saved, repent and believe? I guess he could do anything he wants to, right? He's God. But God chose, God chose to take 12, 11, men and invest in those men in such a way and entrust his gospel to those men in such a way that those men would go and change the world. I want to give you this illustration. If you and I said, you know what, let's pick 12 guys to change the world, 12 men of God that would change the world, where would we find those 12 men? The world 
would say, we need to go to the best seminaries in America and find the 12 best teachers in seminary. Or maybe we should go to the, the biggest churches in America and get those 12 pastors of the 12 biggest churches. They clearly know what they're doing. Or maybe we should go to the mission field and take the 12 best missionaries. I want to make this point to you. Just to clarify some things. I was blessed right out of college, or in college, to go to a Baptist college. I was blessed to spend six years there getting my four-year degree. <laughs> some of y'all get that? I was blessed to meet my wife there, or she was blessed. Some, one of us was blessed. I was blessed after that because my dad helped pay for it to go to seminary and get an understanding and learning and experiences. But some of the greatest men of God I've ever known never went one day to Bible college or seminary. Not a day. Who know the Word, who study the Word, who dive into the Word, and who know just as much and more than I do with 10 years of formal Bible education. So I want you to see that. I, by the way, I'm a fan of it. I would still be in seminary if I could afford it. I, I love to study. I love going. In a different situation, I, might, I would have kept going. But listen, I want to say this to you. When Jesus chose to entrust the message of the gospel, he chose 12 ordinary men. Regular guys, fishermen, right? A tax collector. Re regular guys. And so when we come back to, when we come to 2 Timothy, this of course is some time removed from those original disciples. But I want to show you the pattern that Jesus began with those disciples and that continued through Paul and Timothy and now continues to our day. So 2 Timothy chapter 2. And this morning we're going to focus on just the first two verses. Paul writes to his apprentice Timothy and he says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit those things to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. If I say the name Billy Graham, everyone in here is like, I know, I know the name. You know the name, Billy Graham. Our Billy Graham once, and you know he did these big, what do you call them, crusades, right? Where thousands would come down. He later said that, I read this years ago, I can't find it, but I'm pretty sure I read that he said he believed 90% of those people weren't truly believers because it was such an emotional movement. But he also said this. He said, the crusades I do will never reach the whole world. But if the church would follow the pattern of 2 Timothy chapter 2, we could one day complete the Great Commission. The man who spent his time preaching to thousands and thousands said, if we would just preach one-to-one -one and make disciples, we could reach the world. In this passage, in these two verses, I'm going to give you a four-step pattern for discipleship. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to jot these down. And again, this is a charge to me, it's to Jason, and it's to you, church. The first thing is this, if we're going to make disciples, if we're going to do what God wants us to do, we must abide in the power of Christ. Nothing in the Christian life can be accomplished, nothing in this church can be accomplished apart from the power of God. And let me go off my notes for a second and say this, 
one way we get the power of God, one way we tap into that power of God is by sincere, honest prayer. And church, if we don't pray together, we will never tap into the power of God. Never. If we don't pray together, we will just be out there struggling and, and striving without the true power and trying to get it done on our own apart from Him. I encourage you, church, come and pray with your church. I, I love what it says in verse 1. And when it says, He says, Be my child, He says, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ. Now, if you look at the original language here, I love it. It, it really, literally, it's this Be being made strong. Paul looks at Timothy and says, be being made strong. And so the, 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 the call there is not that Timothy would tough out his ministry in his own power, not that he would just figure out things on his own, but he is to, to trust in the grace that is in Christ. Paul says to Timothy, there is an ever-flowing fountain of grace coming from the Lord, grace upon grace upon grace, and you need to tap into that grace. That's where the strength is. That's where the power is. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, he mentions this. He says, you've, you've got to follow the pattern of sound words by the Holy Spirit that, that dwells in you. And here's why I think this might be difficult for some of us, is we've been taught our whole lives, if we're going to make something happen, we've got to strive and, and, and do it. Um, for an illustration, right, if you, want to, if you want bigger muscles, you have to go move some weight, right? You've got to do some stuff. You've got to push some stuff. But it's the opposite here. In, in, in physical stuff, right, we have to exert energy to be strengthened. But in the Christian life, our strength comes not from our exertion. Our strength comes from our abiding in Him. Look at this text, John 15. We'll probably study this here in a, a month or two. Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. What's the last part say? For without me you can do what? Nothing. And we know Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Church, if you're trying to be a Christian, if you're trying to be a disciple, if Jason and I try to be pastors who rely on our own strength, we will eventually run out of strength. Have you been there? A couple weeks ago, we were headed to church. It was a Wednesday night. And we left our house, and our van said, you know, 20 miles of gas left. And I was like, oh, we can make it to Verona. And that 20 went to 18, 15. I'm like, well, that's not a real, that 20's lying to us. It went down fast, and it finally said one mile, and then it said, you're in trouble after, you know, whatever. And we just coast into the Verona gas station. I was like, whew. Which, that's her car, by the way. Mine always has gas in it, but anyway. That's not fun when you're, like, almost on empty, and you're like, I don't know if we're going to make it or not. Can I be honest with you? As a pastor, sometimes, and just as a, as a husband, a father, a Christian, Sometimes you feel like your life's on empty, and you're like, am I going to make it to the next stop? <laughs> and I can promise you and just be honest with you and say, even as a pastor, there are times where I've not abided in Christ like I should, and I abided in my own knowledge or strength or ability to get a sermon together, and when I do that, I feel myself being drained. 
because I'm, it's abiding in me. I'm trusting in me. I'm not connected to the, the true vine. So I, I encourage you, Jason, and I encourage myself, I encourage you, church, don't try to do this Christian life in your own power, in your own strength. We need the grace of God every day. I won't read all this to you, but in the, Paul began Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. He began and ended those books by saying this, grace and peace to you, church. He began and ended all those. He knew his people needed grace. Church, abide, which means to remain, to stay in the power of Christ. Number two, if we're going to make disciples, if we're going to be the men and women God's called us to be, we need to accept the principles of Christ. Again, look at verse 1. He says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things, that's the key word there, the things you've heard from me among witnesses. And so the things here includes the, the teachings that Paul has taught that Timothy has heard. Now you can skip down to verse 8, and you can see where he, he talks about, remember the, the gospel and then he goes on a few verses later to say, remember all the things I've taught you, not just the gospel of Christ, but other things about the church and about life that I've taught you. And he says, take these principles I've taught you and share them. And so I'm calling us, church, to accept the principles of Christ. When he says, by the way, there to, that he's heard these things in the presence of many witnesses, that word witness is the same word that becomes the word martyr. People who will die for the word. Paul is saying the things I've taught you, the principles I've taught you can be proven by the testimony of other people. I think he probably means, for example, Barnabas, Silas, Luke, John Mark. And so he says, what you've heard from me, and biblically speaking, I've always thought this was interesting. In Deuteronomy, we read about the Shema, which is hear, O Israel, hear from the Lord. And when God says hear something in the Old Testament, it never meant just listen to it. It always meant do it. For God in the Old Testament, hearing meant doing. They were the same thing. How often do we hear something from the Word, but we don't do it? Maybe every Sunday. God help us. And so would we, would we let our hearing lead us to our doing? How about that, parents? Don't you wish your kids would hear it and do it the first time you asked them? They... they Probably don't all the time, or I wish it would happen that way, but how often does God tell us and we're hard-headed and we don't obey? What a, what a ridiculous idea. Think about this. The God of the universe who created us and gives us every, the next breath we take is given by God. And yet he tells us to do something, and we're like, nah. Is that kind of crazy? Do we fear God like we should? Or do we just think hearing's enough? I want to give you a quote from A.W. Tozer. He said, A notable heresy has come into being throughout Christianity circles. It's this widely accepted concept that we can choose to accept Christ only because we need Him as Savior, but we have the right to postpone our obedience to Him as long as we want to. Then he adds this, salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred 
Scripture. And that's why pastors say, you need to come to church. You need to get in the Word. You need to pray. Because if you don't do those things over a period of time, it might show that you actually don't know Christ. Salvation, apart from obedience, is unknown in the Scripture. Another disciple-maker named Dallas Willard said, or he, he coined this term called the vampire Christian. And he said, that's somebody who wants just the blood of Jesus, but they don't want their character changed. They don't want their life changed. They just want the ticket to heaven and not to follow Jesus. And I think Paul would say to Timothy and the Lord would say to us, we need to accept the principles of Christ, which include knowing the gospel and obeying the gospel. Let's move to number three. The third thing here, we need to abide in the power of Christ. We need to accept the principles of Christ. And we need to invest in the people of Christ. He says there in verse 2, The things you've heard from me, entrust those things to faithful men. That word entrust is the word for when someone would set a table for a feast. Like, for example, in a moment we're going to go back there and there's going to be this long table. And it's, I'm assuming, I haven't been back there, I'm assuming it looks like a feast back there. I'm praying anyway that it is. Setting the table for a feast. And what's going to happen? In just a few minutes, we're going to go back there and demolish that table. I've seen our meals eating times. I've seen our meals before. Most of it's going to be gone. <laughs> we're going to eat it. And we put it there. The ladies do a great job, and we eat it. He says here, the, things, the word of God you've heard from me, set it like a feast before the faithful men of God and women of God, and they will take it. They will consume it. The verb form of this entrustment in verse 2 is used in chapter 1, verse 12, when the scripture says, where he says, I'm not ashamed, I know whom I have believed, and that God is able to guard that from what he has, what has been entrusted to me. It's also in chapter 1, verse 14, when he says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so when we think about the principles of Christ, the gospel, the word, how do we safe keep the word of God? And it's opposite of how we safe keep things. You don't have to raise your hand, but I imagine some of you in this room, maybe most of us, have a safe in our house with important stuff in it. Or maybe you have a safety deposit box somewhere, or a savings account, or a hole in your backyard with something buried in it. We, we, the stuff that's important to us, we find, wow, some of y'all actually have holes. I just found out. Okay. <laughs> I just found out. We take the important stuff and we put it somewhere to, to hoard it, don't we? To save it, to keep it safe. I've got a couple of, this is kind of corny, basketball player figurines that are important to me. And I try to keep them hidden from the kids in a safe place. I want to give them to the kids eventually, but not yet. I'm not letting go yet. So when we safeguard things, we hoard it, we hide it. How do we safeguard? How do we guard, as 2 Timothy 1.14 says, how do we guard the deposit that God's given us, not by hoarding it, but by giving it away? It's the opposite. We protect the investment that God has made in us of His gospel by giving it to others. The gospel was never meant to end with me and you, but to go through us. 
It's insane for us to think that God was up there like, you know what? Once Kelby gets saved, that's it. No. He saves us that he might use us to help reach someone else, right? The church is God's plan to reach the lost. We're the plan A, and there is no plan B. That's what I see in Scripture. And so who... Notice this as well. I want you to see this in verse 2. Entrust it to unfaithful men. Are y'all looking at verse 2? Did I read that right? Entrust it to lazy believers. Entrust it to half-hearted men and ladies. Entrust it to the uncommitted. Is that what it says? What's it say? I can't see mine good. Entrust it to the faithful man. You would agree with me, and Jason I know agrees with me. We must preach the gospel to everyone. Everyone in this room, in this community, in this world, if we can, we should preach the gospel to 7 billion people. And if they'll repent and believe, they'll be saved. We should preach the word to everyone, I believe. We should share the word, preach. If people will listen, we should give it. But in verse 2, he's talking about making an investment, a deep investment in people. And when he says that, I think he's saying this. Everyone is not ready to be a disciple. Spend your time pouring your life into those people who are ready. This is reserved for men and women whose character reflects the Word of God and they have a desire to grow in the Word. 1 Corinthians 3.1, Paul said, Brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, you're still of the flesh. Paul, or Timothy, excuse me, if you read his story, he had a grandmother and a mother who invested in him. He had other believers like Paul who invested in him. And Paul says, now I want you to take that word, Timothy, and pour it into faithful men. What I'm calling us to here is reproduction, spiritual reproduction. We need this from our men in the church. We need this from our ladies in the church. We need to invest in each other. We need, we need people who can lead someone to Christ. We need to be able to do that, to share with Christ, lead people to Christ. We need, someone that, we need that same person to be able to help someone grow in Christ through conversation and help. We need to encourage people to read the Scripture, to pray, to serve, and to give. We do not need to become a church of undiscipled disciples. There are enough churches like that where people go and have a good time, but they're not being discipled in the Word of God. Lord, help us not be a church of undiscipled disciples. And we're all in different places, by the way. It's okay to be on the milk of the word. But as you grow, right, you eventually want some whole food, some meat. Remember that the call to follow Christ is not a call to come and sit, but it's a call to go and serve here in this church and in your community. I've used this illustration before as well, but... What if we just put 20 babies in the nursery and 
threw some crackers and milk bottles in there and a couple diapers and said, y'all have fun. What would happen? No telling what would happen. But even with one worker and 20 babies, that'd be tough too, wouldn't it? But sometimes, in some churches, that's kind of what it's like. If you have too many infant Christians, not Christians who are discipled and being discipled and being disciple makers, it can become like that. I've told you the story about my pastor friend who would mail out pacifiers to members of the church who were babies, in his, in his opinion. He would mail them things out. He had a stash in his house. I hope I don't ever get a pacifier. But he was trying to make a point. And here's my point. As you grow in Christ, there should become a time, especially of us of any age, where we're not just being invested in, but where we invest in someone else. Now, I want you to come to church and be fed. I hope the Word feeds you every time you come. But at some point, can you say, I need to give back. I need to talk with my neighbor about the Lord, or I need to talk with my fellow church member and encourage him or, or her. A regular relationship, an intentional, intentional relationship of sharing your life with other believers. We need to invest in the people of Christ. Finally, number four, we need to repeat the purpose of Christ. Think of verse 2. He says, take the thing you've learned from me and in the presence of many witnesses. He says, entrust that to faithful men. And then he says, who will be able to teach others also. Did you know that Jesus is not simply interested in Christians? I think he's more interested in disciples. I did another word study this week. I was on a kick. The word Christian is found in the Bible in the New Testament three times. Look how many times the word disciple is there. About 270 times. And the idea of what I'm saying here is, it's not enough just to be a Christian in name, but to be an actual follower of Christ. And being a regular follower of Christ, being a, a person who is a part of their church, who reads the word, who prays, that's not meant for super Christians or special Christians. That's meant for Christians to serve him that way. We think, well, so-and-so, they really, man, they, they're always at church. They're a super Christian. No, they're a Christian. They're a disciple. They're a follower. So-and-so, they really pray a good prayer. They must be a, man, they're, they might be a preacher one day. They pray really good. No, maybe they're just a Christian. Maybe they just pray. So-and-so talk, talks about the Bible sometimes. Maybe they're taking a seminary class. No, maybe they're just a Christian who reads the Word and gets into it. In this passage, there are four generations of discipleship. If you've heard this before, you know where I'm going, but if you haven't, look at it in verses 1 and 2. There's Paul, the apostle. He teaches his apprentice, Timothy. He tells Timothy to entrust the word to faithful men. And then he says those faithful men will teach others also. Four generations. And you're like, well, this must be good for Jason and for Kelby, but I'm just a, I can't teach the word. If you can talk, if you're a Christian who can talk to another person, you can have conversations about the word. Or about your life, what God's done for you, what God has shown you in his word. I read this in a book years ago. Someone said, 
every Christian is either the Jordan River or the Dead Sea. The Jordan River, flowing, full of life. The Dead Sea, one way in, no way out. How many of us are the Christian version of the Jordan River or the Dead Sea? Are you a river or a reservoir? Every Bible study you come to, every sermon you hear, every time you read the Bible at home, or hear something about the Bible on the radio, or wherever you might hear it, that's an opportunity for you to learn, not just for you, but for someone else. Right? I love it when somebody in our church says, I was reading this last week, what do you think about this? I love that. Because they learned something and they want to share it, or, or talk about it. Maybe God has shared something even in this sermon today that you can take and share with someone. Here's an easy way to start this, by the way. When you drive home after church with a spouse or a child or a parent or whoever you're with, a friend, what did you think about this that was said in the sermon? Or what about that? It's a very simple way. While you're, if you eat lunch at a table together with your family, what did you think about this? My point in this whole message is that discipleship, making disciples, must be my primary thought. It must be Jason's primary thought. It must be the church's primary thought. I once had a discipleship group, we, a group of men who used to meet once a week, and after our first meeting, this young man who was actually an attorney, been in church his whole life, super smart, well put together man, he said this. After our first discipleship meeting, he said, I thought Christianity was just going to church on Sunday and then toughing it out all week, holding on, until I make it to the next Sunday. He said, I never knew that I could even be discipled. I never knew I could actually learn how to read the Bible or pray. And through that conversation, I see that the need for us to invest in each other and repeat the purpose of Christ. He invested, Christ could have spent more time with the thousands, but he spent most of his time with the twelve. What if Timothy had not listened to the words of Paul? What if Timothy had not invested in the lives of others? What if the person who first shared Christ with you had not listened? One of my favorite illustrations to use on this topic is about the Queen's baton relay. And the last time this took place was in 2006, the, the, as far as I can find on Google. It's this ceremony like the Olympics. And at the beginning of it, the queen takes this note, this, and she writes this note out, this special message, special message, and she puts it in this baton, and these runners take it to, I think, 70 different countries. It takes over a year, kind of like the Olympic torch thing. And they run it around, and at the end of the year, they come back, and they hand it to the queen, and she opens it, and she reads the message, and that begins the game for the, whatever, whatever the games are called. And I like to think about the fact that we are running a race, and it's not the queen's relay race, but it's the king's relay race. And I want to go through this with you quickly. Jesus told his disciples Go into the world and make disciples of all nations. He passed the baton to them. The disciples took it. They ran with it. 
One of those disciples, you know as Simon Peter, who denied Christ three times, yet Christ restored him. Christ took that message and he preached it and he preached it. I'm sorry, Peter took the message from Christ and Peter preached it and he preached it and he preached it. And in AD 67 or 68, history tells us they took him to be crucified. And Simon Peter looked at them, the people who were about to murder him, and they said, I don't want to be crucified like my Lord crucified me upside down. I'm not worthy. And so they turned him upside down according to history and tradition and they crucified him. And the baton fell from his hands to another man's hands named the Apostle Paul. We know Paul, who wrote the book of 2 Timothy, persecuted the church on the road to Damascus. He meets Jesus. He's changed forever. This Paul who went through so much, he was stoned, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, hungry, beaten with lashes, faced danger in so many cities. And this Paul in A.D. 68 or so, he was placed on a chopping block. And as the sword came down to take off Paul's head, the baton fell to someone else's. And from Paul, it fell to Timothy. As best we can tell, Timothy carried it faithfully. The baton continued to go on. Eventually, in the year 107, it was brought to a man named Ignatius. Ignatius was brought before a judge, and they said, Ignatius, you can either deny Christ or die. And he says, I am the wheat of Christ, ground by the teeth of beasts to become pure bread. And they took this man, Ignatius, and they threw him to the lions. And that's how he died. As the baton fell from Ignatius, it fell to one of my favorite men to read about in this way, and it's the man named Polycarp. In 167 A.D., Polycarp was this elderly man, older man living for Christ, and they wanted him to burn incense to the Roman emperor to worship him, and he's like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. They, they're like, look, you're older, just do the thing and you'll be spared. Polycarp famously said, 80 and 6 years I served him. How then can I blaspheme, blaspheme my king and savior? Bring forth what you will. So they tied him to a stake and they burned him to death for Christ. And as the flames consumed his body, the baton was passed down from generation to generation. And all the way over in the year 1526, it fell into the hands of a man named William Tyndall. And he translated the Bible into English. He was the first to translate the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. Much of his work is found in the Bible you probably hold in your hands today. You think, wow, Tyndall probably received a lot of praise for translating the Bible from the Greek and the Hebrew into English. But he did not receive praise. He was persecuted. And in 1535, he was arrested and put in jail for over a year. Then tried for heresy and burned at the stake. As his body was being burned, figuratively speaking, the baton was passed to another man named Martin Luther. Which, by the way, is the Reformation. We, sh we should celebrate that even this weekend. Martin Luther was this man who was on a horseback reading uh, the Word of God and was saved by grace through faith. He began to write about things of God and people said, you need to recant these things you're writing or you'll die. And they gave him chance after chance and he said, unless I'm convinced by the testimonies of Scripture... I can neither nor will I make any retraction. And he's famously known for saying this, Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen.
And from generation to generation, the principles of Christ, the gospel of Christ, the word of Christ has been passed down from men and women, boys and girls, over and over again. And right now, on October the 30th, 2022, the baton of the gospel is with us. And we have to finish running our race for Christ. There's a lot of things we can do in the rest of our lives as far as we can somehow become famous, somehow become popular, somehow become well-known, or become well-liked, or become wealthy, or become whatever you want to become. Nothing we'll do is more important than running the race for Christ. Nothing. And these people I just read to you, most of them were willing to lay down their lives. They died for Christ, and some of us won't even live for Him. But if we do, church, if we abide in the power of Christ, if we accept the principles of Christ, if we invest in the people of Christ and repeat the purpose of Christ, one day we'll stand before our King, figuratively speaking, with the baton. But we'll stand before, we'll go before Him, knowing that we ran our race, doing what He's called us to do. I'm charging myself first, and Jason, and you as a church to remind each other our goal is to make disciples. May we be committed to this act of disciple-making that will glorify God, that will strengthen us, and that will reach people for Him. Let's pray.